Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. My name's Mike Fenton-Stevens, and My Time Capsule is the podcast where I ask my guests to tell me the five things from their life they would choose to put into a time capsule. They pick four things that they cherish or would like to see again, but they also pick one thing that they'd like to put in there and forget about. Something they want to bury in the ground and never think of again. My guest in this episode is the Grammy Award-winning composer and conductor, Eric Whittaker, who is among today's most popular musicians. His works are played worldwide and his groundbreaking virtual choirs have united 100,000 singers from more than 145 countries over the last decade. Born in Nevada in 1970, Eric is a graduate of the prestigious Juilliard School of Music in New York. He's currently visiting composer at Pembroke College, Cambridge, and recently completed his second term as artist-in-residence with the Los Angeles Master Chorale. Eric's debut album as conductor on Universal, Light and Gold, went straight to the top of the charts, earning a Grammy. As a guest conductor, he's drawn capacity audiences to concerts with many of the world's leading orchestras and choirs in venues from Carnegie Hall in New York to the Royal Albert Hall in London. Eric has worked with legendary Hollywood composer Hans Zimmer, co-composing the Mermaid's theme with him for the Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides and music for Batman vs Superman Dawn of Justice. And he's collaborated with British pop icons Laura Mvula, Imogen Heap and the incomparable Annie Lennox. His composition Deep Field was inspired by the achievements of the Hubble Space Telescope and became the foundation for a pioneering collaboration with NASA, the Space Telescope Science Institution and Filmmakers 59 Productions. The soundtrack, composed by Eric, features the Virtual Choir 5, representing 120 countries, more than 8,000 voices aged from 4 to 87, alongside the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra and the Eric Whittaker Singers. 
His long-form work, The Sacred Veil, written to the lyrics from a poem by his old friend Charles Anthony, or Tony Silvestri, which Tony wrote about coming to terms with his grief after the loss of his wife Julie to breast cancer, is a profound meditation on love, life and loss, and was premiered by the Los Angeles Master Chorale, conducted by Eric. In 2021, Eric launched the Virtual School with its first course, The Beautiful Mess, Masterclass in Composition and Creativity. His latest album, Home, has just been released on Decca Classics, and it's a collection of pieces recorded with the world-famous choir Voces 8. It includes his latest single, All Seems Beautiful to Me. I suppose you can tell that I can't recommend listening to Eric's music enough. And there are links in the description of this episode, so you can. But first, let's hear the five things he chose to put in a time capsule. And I promise you that, like me, you will fall in love with the delightful Eric Whittaker. Hello. Hello, Eric. Hello, hello. <laughs> we are straight in. How are you? I'm great. How are you, Mike? Fantastic. What a wonderful thing to make the world so small. <laughs> Indeed. I'm in a conference room in Ghent, Belgium right now. So it's <laughs> amazing. <laughs> I know. It, it doesn't matter, does it? It's extraordinary that we can do this. It truly. But, you know, there you are. Here I am in my study. And you, of course, have looked into the rooms of thousands of people. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> that, that, that is true in, in the oddest way, I should say. Yeah, I know. You've become almost the great voyeur. <laughs> Thousands of people's bedrooms as they stand there and sing into the microphones. Uh, Eric, I've been watching and listening to things. And really, it's quite extraordinary. Thank you. It's really beautiful, your music. Thank you, truly. That, that means so much to me, Mike. Thank you. No, honestly, I've, I, I've listened to Sing Gently in all sorts of forms, uh, sung by, is it Voces 8? That's correct. Voces 8. Yeah. Yeah. Voces 8. What a, what a choir. Yeah. Just the, yeah. the balance between them. I mean, did you put them together or, or were they already formed? No. So they're, they're a very uh, well-known group within choral circles. Mm. And the eight of them, I think they must have been singing for more than 10 years now. And right. I've been a super fan for a long time. Mm-hmm. And we started off, we, we thought that we would do just this little project together. And the moment we got in the room together, we said, oh, my God, there's just something <laughs> magical happening here. Yeah. And so, yeah, then we made this whole album. But Sing Gently was one part of that. Oh, it's, it's beautiful. Thank really you. beautiful. And I love the clip with um, Sing Gently for Upper Voices with the, just the children. Ah, it, it's, yeah. it's really moving, isn't it? Thank you. Yeah, I find so too. I mean, well, anytime... Anytime I hear kids sing in general, I just get, I get all all rubbery, but especially (laughs) singing that piece because, you know, that piece was born during the pandemic. And so Mm. to just be reminded of people being able to sing together and young people singing again, that's, it's everything for me. Yes. Yes. My son, who's the producer of this podcast is really also, he writes music and uh, his son seems to have picked it up. He played me something this morning that his son, Freddie, was singing. He said, what are you singing? He said, it's, it's a song. He said, where did you hear it? He said, I wrote it. <laughs> and, and he's eight. And I think that's just fabulous. How beautiful. So do I. Yeah. That's incredible. Isn't it? Yeah. It's, they, they often say that, that you don't choose music, that music chooses you. Mm-hmm. And that's about the age that that awakening starts. It's right around eight years old, I think. I think you're right. But it's also a wonderful thing that uh, I think a lot of children will have that intuitively. They're not scared of it. No question. And, you know, the arts in general, I remember reading one time, it was Picasso who said that, I paraphrase, but that that all children are born artists, but only the lucky few survive into adulthood. Mm. And I think that's really true, that, that there's something about the way we educate children, especially our modern education, that 
God, around that age, eight, nine, 10, it, it really starts to get squeezed out of you. Mm. That very natural instinct, as you say. Yes. Quite often what happens at that age is you're told the answer. Yes. And then have to learn it from what you're told rather than asked a question. That's exactly right. And you're, you're taught that the, in general, the world is right or wrong, that there mm. are these absolutes. And the creative mind actually isn't like that at all. No. It's, it's all about looking for the, for the dandelion in the pavement crack. Yeah. <laughs> That's great, dandelion in the pavement crack. Yes, all right. So you're you create things. I can tell that from the way you describe things. Oh. <laughs> As to you, well, yes, but uh, you know, I've, I, I've got a gold disc. Look, you can see it sitting behind me. So I, have... <laughs> I can't see it. <laughs> <laughs> it is extraordinarily for a comedy album, so it doesn't really count. <laughs> Are you a comedian, also, Mike? And that's what I do mostly, actually. Yes, I do comedy. Ah, yes. You do stand up or, or uh, writing? Uh, no, writing, acting? writing, and so, acting. Yeah. Ah, yeah. That's what I've done most of my life. Yeah, so I like it. I I could talk to you about it for hours. <laughs> to to me. I mean, I'm fascinated by comedy, but I'm especially fascinated by comedy writing mm. because to me, there's nothing more elegant or difficult than writing funny and especially writing funny from character. Yeah. I find it such an elevated art form. Yes, it's a, it's a marvelous thing. I mean, I wouldn't put myself down as one of the best writers, but friends of mine who I would, it's astonishing where they write so beautifully in comedy. It's, it's so succinct. My favourite joke of all time was written by a man called Bob Monkhouse, who was a British comedian. Yeah. But he yeah. wrote the joke, uh, when I die, I want to go peacefully in my sleep like my father, not screaming in terror like his passengers. <laughs> it's, that's what I mean. It's, it's so good, right? It's, uh, it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. It's mm. amazing. It's, what, a, what a beautiful life then. You've, so so I, what turned you to podcasting then? My son, again, said to me, you know, you've um, worked with lots of different people. You've done lots of different things. You should talk to people about it. Huh. And I said, well, I don't want to talk about me. And, <laughs> and, and so I, but it's been an interesting process because I've discovered that you wouldn't think so far on this conversation that I'm actually able to listen to people, which is a nice thing <laughs> to do in life. No, not at all. Yeah, it's beautiful. And I listened to several episodes. I love the, 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 the format is brilliant. Oh, great. Yeah, and, and you are extraordinary host as i'm sure you've been told that's an unusual thing in the podcast landscape i find oh that's nice to hear yeah you truly well i would be very happy just to talk to you but i'm going to use the format to see if we can discover things about your life and about you that lead us to different things that you may not necessarily have spoken about before and it may even be a journey of discovery for you who knows <laughs> i'd be happy to yeah i'm happy to thank How you lovely. mike so um there were things I wanted to ask you. Your friend, Tony Silvestri, yes. who wrote the, the words, beautiful words. I wrote it down. I thought it was so beautiful. And, and again, we're talking about succinct. Uh, listening to the laboured breath, your struggle ends as mine begins, you rise, I fall. It's, it's just one of the most beautiful pieces of poetry I've, I've read for years, I think. Isn't that extraordinary? It's amazing, yeah. Yeah. And anybody who's sat with someone dying, you know exactly what that means. Yeah, Tony, Tony, when <laughs> Tony looked so bravely into the face of what he had witnessed mm. and into his own grief, and just, as you said, just said it. He just said it clearly and succinctly. I'll tell you what's fascinating about that little line that you just quoted. So the words, you rise, I fall, mm. I came up with that at first. Right. That was my prompt for Tony because... It's the kind of thing Tony would never say out loud, but being his best friend and watching him go through it, 
at, at the moment of his wife, Julie's passing, after a year of the hardest, most excruciating struggle possible, she was finally relieved of, of that pain. Mm. So she rises, but in that exact moment, that's, that's the moment that Tony's true hell began. Yeah. And so I, I really wanted Tony to explore that idea of just very simply, you rise, I fall. Mm. And so then Tony wrote the lines that accompany that bit that, that you read. Mm. And they're so powerful, not only because, as you say, they're so succinct, but they're so Tony. That's, that's the soul of Tony. That's the soul of the person I know. And it's a very rare person, I, I find, who can just simply write themselves out loud mm. with, without adornment, if you know what I mean. Yes, because we all adorn ourselves all the time. Yeah, you, you can't help it. And especially when you start to write, you're aware of, of construction and of the, the, you're trying to polish the language itself mm. as opposed to simply saying, here's who I am. Yes. And of course, that falling, he would have been holding himself together, wouldn't he? Right the way through it. That's the difficult thing about being with someone that you know is going to die, is that you have to act as if it's fine. That's, I'm fine. Don't worry about me. Everything's fine. That's it. That's it. It's unimaginable, the strength that that would take. And then when she died, she left behind a seven-year-old boy and a three-year-old girl. So, so even from the moment this begins, Tony's first job is to stand up and take care of that family, which mm. he did beautifully. They're, they're both young adults now, and, and he, he raised them beautifully. But my God, that strength, the emotional discipline to to look into the face of the unimaginable and then and then do what needs to be done. Yeah. It's, I, I really always saw Tony as a hero. Mm. No, I'm not surprised. Yes, it's amazing when you see people do that. And and it, it's surprising how many people have the strength to do it. Yeah, it's. I imagine it's one of those things that you simply don't know you have that that capacity within you until you're confronted with it. No. And, and probably only years and years later can you look back at that moment and say, I can't believe I survived that. Mm. Yes. And as you say, it's, it's a strange thing because for the survivor, you're the survivor. So, of course, people are helping you, but they, they would never think of you as the victim, in a way, of, of this incredible trauma. Mm. Um, I, I suppose, and I, I suppose we're all lucky enough if we get to go through it and survive it. Yeah. That's, it's simply part of what it is to, to live. Mm-hmm. There's not a, a human on earth, I think, who eventually, if you live long enough, you will suffer those sorts of tragedies in your life. That's right. But you're right. You don't know how you're going to react to them. But that thing of, of going on, of I have to go on, I mean, with young children, amazing, amazing. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah. And, and the name Silvestri jumped out of you. I always imagined that all the Silvestris in America are all related, that they all know <laughs> each other, you know, because there's Alan Silvestri, who's an incredibly famous composer, isn't there? That's right, very famous, and no relation. In fact, no. as far as I know, Tony and Alan have never met before. And um, I worked with a, a Martin Silvestri, who wrote a musical called The Fields of Ambrosia. Really? Yes, we put it on in London. Huh. And it was a very good fun, because I had to learn an Alabama accent, which I, I'm not going to do for you now. <laughs> 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 that's not an easy accent no that, that Alabama accent no, that's very so, specific particularly for an Englishman that thing of letting your jaw go loose it's hard yeah yeah it's truly and I think there's the caricature version of it right there's the, mm -hmm. the you know that everybody knows but then there's the sophisticated version of it which yeah. is as you say is is yeah I, but I guess that's your work right that's your your life's work is finding those characters well, and I was lucky enough to be surrounded by a lot of Americans as well so they they helped enormously ah yeah 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 if only just saying it's good that's good you know because <laughs> you don't know 
But I had the same experience recently. I did a television thing called Avenue 5. Ah, uh, yeah. And half the cast are American and half are English. And in the middle of it is Hugh Laurie doing an American and an English accent because he can do both yeah. brilliantly. And I had to play an American. So it was quite daunting. But they were fantastically generous. Hey, great. You know, yeah, the way you say water. That's amazing. (laughs) That's that's the incredible thing with accents too, isn't it? Where there's no, you you can immediately tell, Mm. right? Instantly tell. It's so deeply ingrained. So to get it right, like even like you just did, did it's it's indetectable. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That is amazing. That's such a gift. That that must be something that you were born with, though. I don't know. I don't know. But (laughs) you see, now the comedy side of me was waiting for you to say. Sorry, was that supposed to be an American accent? <laughs> <laughs> that's that's why you're the comedian, for sure. <laughs> oh, right. Okay, well, that's all that out of the way. I've cleared that up. The non-connection between all the Silvestris. Marvellous. So let's talk about the things you'd like to put into a time capsule. Ah, sure. And see where we go. So what would be the first thing? All right, so the first thing that I would put in my time capsule would have to be the very first synthesizer that I purchased. So... Yes, this was in 1984. I was mm-hmm. 14 years old. And of all things, I was cast in a nationwide McDonald's commercial. <laughs> now, I'm not an actor. I've never acted before or since. But I, I heard the call on my little hometown radio station and begged my mom to take me. I have no idea why. And she took me five nights in a row for these different auditions. And I was cast. And my, my part ended up being maybe two or three seconds long. Mm. But it was the kind of thing that ran nationwide for four years. Ooh. And it made me enough money as a young kid in the 80s that I was able to buy my first synthesizer. And at that time, I had just discovered electronic music. I was obsessed with Kraftwerk and Tangerine Dream and Jean-Michel Jarre mm-hmm. and then Depeche Mode and Pet Shop Boys. I didn't read music. I played only by ear. But I went in and I purchased a real synth, this Ensonic ESQ-1, it's called. <laughs> only real gearheads from the 80s will remember this synthesizer. But it's, that's what got me writing music. I started writing hundreds and hundreds of pop songs and sort of movie scores without movies right. on this synthesizer. And I, I spent more time with that piece of equipment than I definitely did any, any school book I was given. Mm-hmm. So were you self-taught then? Completely. Wow. Yeah, so I had I had an ear early on, but I just had an obsession to to make these little songs and like I said, these little movie scores without movies, these kind of journeys. Mm-hmm. And I was I, I was entranced by electronics. Mm. I still am. I found them I found them magical in a way. Yeah. And, and so that would be the first thing that I would put in the time capsule. There were some fantastic synthesizers around that time, weren't there? Oh, my God. I love the things that they all had a little sort of thing on the side that you'd you'd go, just for varying the pitch. That's right. And did you ever own one that had where you could blow into a tube? Oh, absolutely. And I had one (laughs) with a vocoder as well. I had drum machines. Yeah, by the the time I graduated from high school, I had a, a lot of equipment. Yeah. I will confess that even now I'll go on eBay late at night and <laughs> scope out, maybe it's time to, you know, because there's quite a trade now in, the, in authentic instruments from yes. the 80s. Yeah. yeah. And so, so I thought maybe, maybe I'll start rebuilding all of that stuff. I love those machines. Mm. It's a very particular sound as well, isn't it? You can place a piece of music from that time because of the sounds that those instruments made. Yeah, that's, that, that is so true. Mm. It's so true. It's, it's like hearing in classical music, you know, uh, if you're a viola da gamba, you know, okay, it's from this period. And if you hear a, 
a Juno 106, you know, oh yeah, that's, that's 1985. I know exactly <laughs> what, what that sound, what it's from. What, yeah. Quite a daunting thing then to come from that. Well, all the people I know are self-taught and are interested in pop music to make that shift into classical music, because mm. that's such a discipline. You would have to go right back to the beginning and in a way, reteach yourself everything, wouldn't you? You would think. Mm. So as it turns out, actually, this is, if you don't mind, this is a beautiful segue into what my second time capsule. I don't item mind would at be. all. No. Yes. <laughs> so I'll start by saying this. So at 18 years old, then not reading a note of music, I went off to college and I grew up in Nevada on the West coast of the United States. I wore actual cowboy boots. So, <laughs> so, so real cowboy country. And I auditioned for a music scholarship there only because I knew that I loved music. I honestly thought I just want, would be a pop musician for mm -hmm. the rest of my life or maybe score films. But I didn't get a music scholarship. Of course, they, you know, I couldn't read music. <laughs> uh, um, but, but in the audition room at the time was the choir conductor, a man named David Weiler. And David took me over to his room and he asked me to sing through some things. And he could see immediately that even though I couldn't read music that I, I could... I had an ear mm. that if he played something to me like a parrot, I could sing it back to him. So he invited me to join the choir. And it, I was reluctant at first. <laughs> but then I went to my first rehearsal about two weeks after they had started. And we started by singing the Requiem by Mozart. Oh, marvelous. And I had never, <laughs> yeah, I was standing in a room full of 100 people. I was, I was a bass, so we were in the middle of, of the room. And David lifted his arms and boom, we launched into that, that fugue. And I look back now and I think it, it was more than just being overwhelmed by, by the music of it, by the, the, the counterpoint and the, the harmonies and the, just this other world that I didn't know existed. I realize now that that moment is the first time I ever felt part of something larger than myself. Mm. And it, it changed my life. In a single rehearsal, I left a transformed person. And so my time capsule item would be this score from the Mozart Requiem. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. At that moment, towards the end of that, there's the moment where they sing Kyrie Eleison. It holds on this note uh, and it does the wrong note. Do you know what I mean? Uh, if, if you're... Am I making sense? Well, if, if we're talking it, about the well, same moment... It, it, there's dissonance there, which you just don't expect. You expect it to be saying, you know, it to be glorious in a way, to be exalting God and life. And, but in fact, what it does is it suddenly makes this sound that makes you go, oh my God, there's something wrong. Yeah, I'll tell you what, what's interesting about that is if we're talking about the same moment, the very end of the Kyrie Eleison, then it ends yeah. not major or minor. So there's actually no dissonance. It's completely hollow, which, right. which you would never expect. And it's also just beautiful text painting that he's doing there by, by leaving mm. that ambiguous. And it also then prepares you for the launch into the Dies Irae, which comes right afterwards, uh, the day right of wrath, there. day of reckoning. Mm. It's I could oh. I could go on and on about the writing of, I mean, of that piece. Do I it's, think it's amazing? What an amazing skill he had. I mean, I think as Salieri says in the film, you know, it's it's God given. Yeah, that it's extraordinary. That that is something I've known in my time. Some musicians um, who were you could see were just touched by the hand of God. Were so unbelievably talented. Mm. And then there's Mozart. <laughs> there there is there is story after story of these musical things that Mozart did that are 
incomprehensible. You can't yeah. imagine. My, my favorite one is that I think it was the 21st. No, no, I think 23rd piano concerto. Anyway, he had run out of time while, of course, while he's writing it. So he played the first performance. So he didn't bother writing out the entire piano score because he knew he would play it. Hmm. But then also he didn't have time to make a full score. So he would have played without a conductor. So he simply wrote the parts, which if you can imagine this, that means that you know in your head the entire score. You know what the clarinet will play in movement two on measure 66, mm. and you can write just their parts for them. The, it, this is inconceivable yeah. that somebody could could do this musically. It's it's a mind like, mm. yeah, maybe, maybe once in a millennia. Yeah, so I was in a production of Amadeus a long time ago. Oh, you were? It's a, the most extraordinary play to be in because there are moments in it where you know that the audience are not only being held by the words, but because it has the greatest backing track ever written. <laughs> you can feel the audience holding their breath. Yeah, it's... And it, some of the things he says, the, the, um, when he's talking about seeing the music for the first time, these are the first time he's written them down, and they're absolutely flawless. That's right. And he says it's as if, as if he'd taken dictation. That's right, as if he's taken dictation, because he's already worked it all out in his mind. Mm. It's staggering. And, and I think I'm 53 now. Mm. Mozart was 35 when he died. <laughs> Yeah, 35. And the Requiem, the, the one I'm talking about, that he died writing. Mm. He had also just the month before finished The Magic Flute, one of the great operas of all time. And I, that was just the second half of, of 1791, you know. Yeah. I mean, he, it was just staggering, just staggering mm. what he was able to do. Yes. So when you went into that room, not able to read music and just have a good ear, mm. I've been in situations like that. I used to sing on a show here and I survived because I went in early and listened to the band lay down the track and would say to the musical director, <laughs> what's my part? And he'd say, well, this, this harmony. I'd go, okay. So by the time the proper singers turned up, I knew my part and I could That's stand it. and sing it with them. Did you cheat like that? It's so funny. So I did exactly the same thing. So mm. not in that case, but earlier on when, when I was in high school, I even played in concert band for a little while. I played trumpet. But again, not reading a note of music, what I would do is I would sit outside the room while people were going in for their audition. Mm. And because my last name is Whitaker and begins with W, I was always last. <laughs> so, so I would hear people play through their audition material and then just go in and fake it by ear. And it was as bad that, that if people made a mistake, then I would just repeat the mistake. Yeah. You know, so, <laughs> so, so really like a parrot. <laughs> oh, God. I was caught out eventually. Somebody said were to me, you? yeah, somebody said, do you want to come and sing on this advert? Good money. And I said, yeah, happy to. And so I turned up at the studio and there was a full orchestra, a full rock and roll band. Oh, my God. And then eight singers. And we were recreating an Elvis Presley song. Oh, my God. And the musical director said, can I have the singers <laughs> gather round, handed out the pieces? He said, okay, right. Uh, so we go from uh, bar 21 and two and... <laughs> <laughs> and off they went of course you know and i <laughs> terrible uh, that's amazing <laughs> yeah i always thought i could bluff it but uh, <laughs> in the end you get caught out well yeah. uh, yes we will put that moment that wonderful moment in Mozart's Requiem and uh, changing your life, transformative moment. We'll put that into the time capsule. So it's two things we've got in there, Eric. Excellent. Lovely. Right, what's next? There we are. I told you Eric was lovely, didn't I? Which is why I'm sorry to interrupt him to play some ads. Still, needs must. See you in a moment. Hey. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome back. Right, let's continue our conversation with the composer and conductor Eric Whitaker and discover what else he'd like in his time capsule. Okay, so the the next is a moment. It's a, a moment and a memory for me. Mm-hmm. But this was so after I went to the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, I got my bachelor's degree. It took me seven years to get it. <laughs> I went and did my master's degree at the Juilliard School in New York. Fabulous. Uh, yeah, it was an extraordinary experience. And I was invited down to Florida, a choir down there at the University of Miami was giving a concert of uh, a new piece that I'd written called Water Night. Now, Water Night is delicate and gossamer and introspective, and it's in this kind of beautiful, surrealist poetry by Octavio Paz, Mexican poet. This is all to set up where this the performance of this thing happened. So we rehearsed it. And then we took this long bus trip up the entire length of Florida, which is the same length as like driving from one end of Italy to the other. Florida's (laughs) huge. (laughs) And halfway up on our trip, we stopped at a TGI Fridays. I don't know if there's TGI Fridays. Yeah, they do. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So you can picture what that looks like. Mm -hmm. Right. And we called ahead and let them know that 75, 80 people were coming in. We're going to take over part of the restaurant and have a big meal. So we're in the TGI Fridays, and the conductor I knew pretty well. He was a mentor of mine. And I would always do these pranks with him where I I went up to the hostess and told her that it was his birthday. (laughs) And so they bring a cake, and then the entire choir sings happy birthday to him, right? (laughs) Then at the end of that, I I say, happy 60th birthday, Mike. He's only 42 at the time. So so that's that's the joke, right? But then the manager comes over and says, oh, we didn't know when you called ahead that you were a choir. Will you sing something else for us? So I, you know, I don't know what I said to whoever was next to me, but they looked at me and they said, we should do water night. And everybody starts saying, water night, 
water. Okay, so now now that I've set up the piece Water Night, you can imagine there's no more inappropriate piece to (laughs) sing in a crowded lunch TGI Fridays, all right? (laughs) So as a joke, I stand up on my chair and I call for a pitch so we get a B-flat. I wave my arms, you know, very grandly, and then I start into the piece. And for the first two measures, I'm just making a big goof out of it. And then the most incredible thing happened. Everyone in the restaurant stopped eating. They slowly started putting down their their silverware, and the busboys stopped moving. And for five minutes in the middle of Central Florida, there was not a sound in this TGI Fridays. Everyone was just transfixed by the choir. And four or five measures in, I realized what was happening. I had tears in my eyes and it was the most electric performance I've ever given still mm. to this day. And it, it says everything to me that I think back about that moment. I think, it, and it's everything that I love about music, this idea that it can be so immediate and so, so visceral mm. and so unexpected that it can take any space and transform it into a sacred space. Yes. And so that, so I'd love to put that memory in the time capsule. What a fabulous memory. The power of a choir, though, is astonishing, isn't it? If anybody's never actually stood in front of a choir and watched all those people all sing together, and I love the fact that the understanding, the, the sort of the balance that people create between mm. each other, even though they're standing well apart sometimes, and that passing the baton, as it were, between each other so that you all work as a team That's exactly to create it. this one thing. It's an amazing thing to see. Yeah, it's something, it's, I wish everyone could experience it because another thing happens is that even if you think you can't sing or you've never sung before, there's a wave that you're riding. It's almost like surfing. Mm-hmm. And, and the voices that are around you carry you. They sort of pull a voice out of you that you didn't know you had. Mm-hmm. And like you say, it's almost like murmurations with starlings, you know, where they, those birds all move at the same time. Yeah. Everyone is listening and moving together. And it's exactly that feeling I described before. At some point, you are part of something larger than yourself. And I've never experienced anything that can unify a group of people faster than simply taking a breath together and singing a note together. Mm. It's th- this, this pure and shared intention from that single moment and you become this this living, breathing organism. And of course, lots of people do know that experience, but don't necessarily recognize it. I think if you said to them, mm. do you want to join a choir? They'd say, why would I want to join a choir? And you say, because you're a Liverpool supporter. And every week you say, <laughs> we'll never walk alone with 10,000 other people. Yeah, that's exactly right. Especially in the UK, football mm. fans know what it is, the power of singing together. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it takes your breath away. It's so exciting and thrilling and beautiful. And, and you really do feel for a moment like you're, you're part of something larger than yourself. Yes. And they have this innate ability to all just sing the same note. Amazingly, all these people who'd say they can't sing. I bet you if you ask most of them, oh, I can't sing, I can't sing. They actually always plump to sing it really high as well. So you <laughs> yeah. suddenly find in the midst of them these extraordinary tenor voices. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I, I do think that singing together, as I say, pulls out something out of you that is, that is primal and ancient and pure. And I think everybody can sing. Yeah. I, I know lots of people who say, you know, I can't sing or I'm tone deaf. I, I don't believe that for a second. No. no I really do. Uh, well, it's, it's also the blessing that a choir gives to those sort of voices is that in amongst other voices, you will be drawn towards the right note. And mm. you will also find that because you're surrounded and cocooned by these other voices, mm. you find that you've got more of a voice than you thought you had. 
That is the most beautiful description, cocooned by the voices. Yeah. I'm going to use that. I promise I'll credit you. That is, <laughs> that's the, it's the perfect description of what it feels like. Because the other thing that, that you can't really know until you've done it is it's the opposite of, of being vulnerable and feeling exposed, as you might think if you were singing with a group of people. Mm. You actually feel safe. Yeah. You feel more comfortable, more together than you would otherwise. Mm. But you can't know it until you've actually experienced it. No. No, absolutely not. Well, thank God it's Friday. That's all I can say. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) Absolutely brilliant. I I can picture that moment and I would love to have seen it. It's like those sort of um, surprise, what do they call them? Oh, you mean like a mob choir? Yeah. Flash mob, those things. Flash mob, that's it. Yeah, flash mob. Yeah, exactly. It was like a flash mob. um, And, you know, it's funny that you say that too because I've thought often, like in, in these days there would be a hundred cameras in the room. Mm. And I'm so glad that it wasn't recorded. It lives more colorful in my memory and my soul. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I'm glad I, I don't have video of it. No, I do. I mean, often now performers will say to people, you can stand there and watch this through a camera. I love that. I love that one. But it's much better if you just take it away in your head. Yeah. I love it when people say that, when mm. they remind them that's this is happening right now yes. here in this room with all of us. And in many ways, if you just do it on the camera, you'll only ever experience it as a recording. <laughs> it's true. I think. I think this all the time. I've, I've got a little two-year-old son, and, I, and so now he's in the era where he's watching back videos of himself. Or, mm-hmm. And at best, we've got old, old eight-millimeter films of ourselves as children or annual you know, photos or something. Mm. And I see already that he's not remembering the memory. He's remembering the video. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the video's oddly reductive. Yes, and you you don't remember anything around it. No. All you remember is that specific moment. You don't remember going to the place or the journey or any of those things. That's right. And and you're a writer, so I think you'll relate to this. You remember through watching videos, you remember plot, but you don't really remember. You don't get character. You don't get context. Mm. You know, so here are the beats of the thing that happened. It's documentary style in a way, but it's not, you know, a memory is so vivid and rich and large mm. and 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 it gets reduced somehow in in seeing it back as a video yes i think you're right because we don't only remember in pictures we can remember through smells and just a sound mm. the memory gets triggered by those things you hear them again you smell grass you remember something that's right it, it's very evocative yeah yeah it, over a lifetime right isn't mm. that incredible mm. you can smell something and be taken back 50 years yeah. that fast yeah. yeah time travel wouldn't that be nice anyway we're doing it sort of here <laughs> we're going to put that extraordinary moment into the time capsule just that lovely memory of you all singing together how lovely <laughs> right okay so we've got two left we've got one that you want to bury because you'd like to forget it <laughs> yeah. and one more happy memory so you can do it either way i'll save the the one i'd like to bury for last if that's all right so <laughs> okay that- yeah the happy memory then, I'll go back in time and I'm nine years old, it's Christmas, and my father and mother give to me as a present a telescope, a tiny, cheap little reflector. Mm. And as I was saying before, I, I grew up in this little farming town in northern Nevada, population 5,000, I think. But this is the high Nevada desert. So you had sky. Oh, exactly. The <laughs> biggest skies. And no light pollution. No, nothing. No. Right. So if you went out at night, you were pitch black and you could see thousands and thousands of stars. And I don't know how many nights I spent out there as a as a child, mm. you know, with, with my, my little star chart and trying to find 
the, you know, the, first the planets, then then different stars, and then nebulae, and and yeah. and it began a lifelong obsession with space and astronomy and cosmology. Mm-hmm. Actually, it's even my doorway into physics, which I'm also fascinated by. And I I think so fondly of that telescope. I'm so grateful to my parents for giving it to me. Yes, and I long for those. I long for that sky, that mm-hmm. big sky. But I've watched your extraordinary piece, Deep Field. Ah, yeah, yeah. And when you talk of the telescope, seeing that, and then actually now, because of that amazing Hubble's telescope in space, being able to see to almost to the beginning of time. That's right. That's what's amazing about it. You're not only seeing distance, you're seeing time. It gives you a sense of place, I think, being able to look into the sky and say, well, I'm looking at that star, which may not be there anymore. (laughs) That's right. In the most important way, mm. I, I, I find that even just a few moments meditation on our physical universe, mm. <laughs> like you're saying that, that you're looking at even a star in our own local galaxy could be thousands of light years from us. Yes. But then these, these other galaxies could be billions of light years <laughs> away and may not even exist now. In fact, probably don't exist. And, mm. and it's the great equalizer in that we can really see how impossibly large our universe is mm. and how truly small we are in it. Yes. It's, it's a very good reminder, not, not to dismiss all of the worries or anxieties that are happening, but just to be reminded that it's all so much vaster than we can possibly dream. And that to me, when I think that, it's a gateway to resetting me to a sense of wonder and awe. Mm. Which is which is where I want to be. It's where I think children are. Yeah, that's just just a seeing everything around us for the first time, just being innocent. Mm. It can also give you a great sense of how lucky you are as well. I think in the fact mm. that you recognize it, that you understand it. That for sure, and also just just the odds of you being here are mm. so improbable yeah. that that alone is also just a good reset to say, wow, actually, there's. Only gratitude here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, There's a moment in that film from Deep Field, and I really would recommend everybody to look it up on YouTube. It's fantastic. Uh, the music is amazing. Thank you. And there are moments where you go from one picture to another, and it is simply, to a large extent, made up of photographs taken by the telescope, isn't it? By the Hubble. That's by exactly Hubble, right. Yeah. And so yeah. there's the moment where you travel through a sort of a cloud and you come out and you've been going past stars, an enormous number of stars, and you're amazed by the size of it. And what you're doing is going through our galaxy, as it were. Yes. And then suddenly you come out of the galaxy and galaxies go by you. Yes. And then the scale is, is just astonishing. It's staggering. The absolute magnitude of it is staggering. Even within our local group of galaxies, right? And each one of these galaxies is like our Milky Way, which probably has 400 billion stars just Mm. in it. I I actually, I think it's impossible for the human mind to conceive. And that feeling that one gets is is a real reset. I I think that's a good thing to have. And you mentioned the scale of time that I, it's the other thing that I love to do is to help reset that, that it was Carl Sagan who first made this cosmic calendar, right? Mm. That if the Big Bang happened on January 1st, and then you were to map the entire uh, history of the universe over a single calendar year, right? Yeah. You know, so you'd have dinosaurs appearing in, I think, somewhere in September or October. No, actually, the Earth only forms in September or October. That's right, yeah. Dinosaurs much later. But then 
all of recorded human history happened 14 seconds before midnight on December 31st. <laughs> that is also really important to just take a step back and realize, my God, this has that we can't fathom the amount of time and distance and and size that we're talking about. No, which is which is a good thing. I think yeah, it brings yeah. us to a spiritual yeah. place. Yeah, I think you're right. But to be given the opportunity is the thing, the opportunity to discover. So uh, being given a telescope at the age of seven, what a brilliant thing for your parents to do. Yeah. <laughs> they must have seen you straining your neck, looking up and thinking, <laughs> we know what this boy needs. <laughs> you know, I should, I've never asked my mom. I should ask her what, what it was that she saw that made her think I might like a telescope. Mm. Maybe, I, maybe I talked about it. Actually, maybe around that time I was watching the original Cosmos that's probably what it was. Yeah, yeah. Because I, I've been obsessed with Carl Sagan for as long as I can remember. So it's and the, the movie finishes with the image of the blue dot, doesn't it? Ah, that the, yes, the pale blue dot, as mm. he says. So it, he must have ignited countless young people. Yeah, yeah. To as you say, crane your neck up and mm. look into the sky. Mm. Yes. Well done, him. Yeah. So uh, certainly that telescope is there, and I, I, you know, I have the power. I'm going to put the sky in. <laughs> I'm going to put that Nevada sky in with no light spilling over into it. Ah, oh, that's amazing. This is the best time capsule ever. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So um, finally, something you want to put in there that you'd rather forget. Okay. So I really gave this a lot of thought. And I, I came up with some flip answers and some petty answers. Mm -hmm. And I, I really thought, what is it that I would like to forget? What truly would I like to forget? And the answer that really echoed in me was noise. And not just noise, loud noises, but more as a metaphor mm. that I, I think I spend most of my days and I especially spend most of my musical life looking for the, the silent spaces. Somehow in, those, in that silence is truth. And I work often to simply quiet my mind enough to be present for the truth. So hopefully be the most California thing I say today. But, <laughs> but, but um, that noise that is within me often, all the time if I'm being honest, just to get some distance from it. And if there was a way to take all of that noise and put it in my time capsule mm. and never see it again, I, I, I wouldn't complain. Yes, lock it away. Yeah. Yes, it's very difficult, isn't it? Because quite often we have things that are, are quite straightforward if you could just concentrate on them mm. rather than constantly having your mind go elsewhere. Yes. When you do achieve that, that's when you, you fly. Yeah, and it's the most extraordinary thing because you something you just said is fascinating to me. So you said when you achieve that. But that kind of word, achieve, mm -hmm. is the kind that's the one that sends me off the rails. Because <laughs> right. then achieve is something that I want to do and I strive for. And in my experience, especially performing music, is that it's when I am quieted. Mm-hmm. And then, then I'm somehow, well, again, I'm part of something larger than myself. Yeah. And in those moments, then it feels, it feels transcendent and it feels present and timeless mm. and noiseless. Even though there might be music raging away, yeah. it, it feels noiseless. Yes, absolutely. The tinnitus of life ah. disappears. Yeah, uh, that, that's, that's another one I'm taking, Mike. <laughs> that, 
<laughs> that is beautiful. That's a good name for a piece, actually. Yeah. <laughs> well, I want to be there when you perform it. That's fantastic. I do love the idea. I've heard this from other composers and people I know who write music. They say, I concentrate on the when it stops, when it goes quiet. The silences in between notes are equally as important. You compose those as much as you actually compose the notes. That's, that's exactly right. Yeah, in fact, I, I think the silences are arguably more important because it's not only about giving context for the sounds in between, but I've always thought that what's, what's happening, I, I do this when I'm writing music, which is that I use those silences to, in a way to help the listener lock in an idea. In my mind, what's happening is new neural pathways are being formed, that in that moment of silence, something changes because something new has been learned. Mm. A physical transformation happens in the brain. And so I'm always very aware with, with the piece that I'm writing that, okay, here's a musical idea and now wait. Everybody got that? Okay, now this. Everybody got that? And oftentimes the, the first part of the piece is really only about world building. And okay, here are the physics of this little world that we're about to go on a journey through. Mm-hmm. And, and those silences are essential. And sometimes even the, the silences become the, the building block of the entire piece. Yeah. Is here's, here's the reason we're doing this. So, so I find them essential. And I, I agonize over the exact amount of silence to write in. You know, is it, is it this many beats of rest? Is it this? Is it this? How does that balance this and relate to this? And mm-hmm. yeah, I think I probably spend more time on the rest than I do on the, on the notes themselves. Yes. It's very true in life, I think, if you can create moments of silence. Years and years ago, when I was a very young actor, somebody said to me that acting was about finding the moments of silence. And mm. as an old English actress, she said, it's not a pause, it's a poise. Ha! Huh. <laughs> oh, that's really nice. It's good, isn't it? It's really nice. That's number three that I'm taking, Mike. That you're holding the moment. You're not dropping it. You're holding it. Yeah, yeah. It's it's actually more special than just waiting. Yeah, that's... My, my, I have a 17-year-old son also, and he's with me here in Belgium. Hmm. And we were just today talking about this, about the importance of... He's, he's a jazz musician. Hmm. So jazzers talk only about the spaces between the notes. You know, that's that's where... <laughs> That's where it lives, man. And, 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 and we were talking about that, that very thing, that, that moment of anticipation mm. and that, that you can really only build that if, if, if like, like you and I are having a conversation and then we finish this, yeah. the, the idea, right? That, that anticipation, it primes something in us that then opens us for the next bit that we really need to hear. Yes, absolutely. So I yeah. love the idea that it's not just a pause. It's, it's, it's you're holding the moment. Yeah. That's right. It's a bridge to the next big idea. Mm. So nice. Yes. And in life, if you, some people, they put those pauses in before they've even started. In a way, you've got to earn it, haven't you? Again, there was a musical analogy that was used about acting to me a long time ago, where somebody said, you know, if you're writing, you can do that, and it's very entertaining. But in fact, what's really entertaining is to go, what's entertaining about that is that it stops. So true. It's so true. I love that. I, I, I love that. Yeah. And it's um, so easy to say out loud. It's so easy to say, oh, the, you know, we just need a little quiet and quiet in our lives, a little silence, a little. And I find there's nothing more difficult, mm. especially when it comes to then the internal journey to simply 
Well, I, I actually think the game is, this is where I'm at now. I think the game internally is that you can't quiet it. That there's part of the mind, its job is to just, that's its job. Mm. The, the game seems to be for me to not mistake for me. Mm-hmm. That that's not me. That's just part of the machine that's working. And so the silence, I think, is if I can somehow just get over onto the beach and sit on the beach and watch the storm out there on on the water yeah. and just observe it, then it feels like I've found a, a bit of quiet, even in, in the midst of the storm. Mm. I, again, it's so easy to say. I was also joking <laughs> with my son about this today that we were talking about Zen Buddhism. But, you know, you'd have a big thought like that. And then a, a, I think a Buddhist master would then hit you on the head with a bamboo pole and say, <laughs> just... You're thinking too much. Just sit and breathe. Yeah. Just sit and breathe. Just, you know. <laughs> even if you're talking about it, even if you think you've got it all figured out, right on the head. Yeah. Just breathe. Just breathe. Well, listening to your music does that to me. So um, I hope many more people do. Uh, good luck with the new album. It's just out, isn't it? Thank you. That's right. Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah. Home. The home. Yeah. yeah. With, with what you say, I'm incredibly proud of of the music that we made on that oh i'm sure yeah yeah and it was that that was a sort of a once in a lifetime experience recording that with them music making at the highest level with those eight singers my god there's a moment in all seems beautiful to me yes there's a moment in that that reminds me very much of that moment in Curie Laison. Ah. And that's uh, the highest compliment i can pay but listening to it it absolutely took me aback i went oh my word i didn't expect that <laughs> I'm, I'm genuinely humbled by that. Thank you so much, Mike. <laughs> lovely. What a, what a joy to meet you. How lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much, Eric. It's really sweet of you to give me your time. Oh, it's it's been an honor. Thank you, Mike. It's great to meet you. And and next time, let's let's do this in person. Yeah. Over martinis, shall we? That would be lovely. Yes. Thank you, Mike. It's so nice to talk to you. You have been listening to my time capsule with me, Mike Fenton Stevens, and my lovely guest, Eric Whitaker. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. As I said, I would recommend looking at and listening to Eric's work. You'll find links to it in the description of this episode. If you had a good time and are new to this podcast, then perhaps, and actually regular listeners will know I say this bit at the end of every episode, so feel free to skip. But perhaps you'd like to subscribe, rate, or even review this podcast. It's a slow process building a listenership, so anything you can do to help is greatly appreciated. And subscribing, rating, highly, obviously, and writing a nice review really do help. So thanks. You can see what's coming up on the pod by following me and or my time capsule on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. And you can listen to the theme tune written by Pass the Peas Music, which is available to stream or download at your leisure on Spotify. If you'd rather listen to this podcast uninterrupted, then for a very small monthly fee, you can subscribe to Acast Plus, where you will get to hear it ad-free and maybe even sponsorship ad-free if you choose that, so you'll get straight to the nitty-gritty. Again, link in the description. This was a cast-off production for Acast, and the producer was John Fenton Stevens, which, of course, is another name for Pass the Peas Music. In case you didn't realise, yes, John does nearly everything on this. I just chat. I hope you'll join us again for more My Time Capsules or even listen to the 300-odd episodes we've already made if you include Christmas specials and compilation episodes. There's lots of lovely guests, so have a browse. Right, I leave you with my favourite thing to say to a musician or a conductor. OK, right, I'm going to sing, so give me a B-flat. Actually, give me a B. I'll flatten it myself. Bye. Bye.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.